0: Well, hey, welcome, uh, welcome to Answering the Tough Ones. That's, this seems a little bit hot. Is it loud? It seems loud to me. Right you're not, you're not, crazy loud. not crazy loud. Maybe just a little bit down, Jeff. <clears throat> cool. Well, just like any great Watermark event, um, there will probably be pe- people trickle in for the next 15 minutes. Um, so it's fine. We'll let them come. My name is Nathan Wagnon. I serve on the equipping team here at Watermark. Um, I'm the director of equipping and apologetics, which is appropriate for this class because this is our core class on apologetics. So um, welcome, welcome to answering the tough ones. We, we typically, in these classes, try to get an idea of, of who's coming, um, and we typically have this really formal poll, and it looks like this informal question of, how many of y'all, this is the very first core class you've ever come to? Raise your hand, please. Okay, good. All right, sweet. How many of y'all took the Life of Christ class that just ended um, a few weeks ago? Sweet. <laughs> yeah, there you are. Sweet. Hey, strong. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, the way the core classes work, just to give y'all an idea, since most of y'all, this is your first time to ever experience a core class, is we believe that there are uh, six kind of, well, why we call them core, core fundamental things that we want to, as an equipping team, to equip our body to be well-versed at, and uh, this is one of those uh, things. So uh, because there are six of them, and now that I'm saying this, I'm going to miss one, but there's, um, there's cover to cover, which is the whole story of the Bible. There's uh, keys to effective Bible study, which is how do you study your Bible. There is the life of Christ, which is who is Jesus and what was his message, what was his mission, um, why should we follow him. There's answering the tough ones, which is our apologetics class. How do you engage, our, uh, how do you, how do you engage people in your life who are asking the tough questions um, with an appropriate biblical response to those questions? And then there is uh, a, a class on evangelism, which will follow this class. So this class will run six weeks, and then there will be a two-week break, and then the evangelism class is four or five weeks that runs all the way up into to the holidays, so that's what the core classes are would definitely encourage you guys to continue to track with those if there's not a core class you've taken would definitely encourage you to ultimately take all six of them okay um, so that's that's uh that's what core classes are as far as answering the tough ones, this is going to be a six week uh, class. It's going to be team taught um, every single night so tonight Um, I've got David, who I'll introduce here in a minute, and then um, David and I will teach for approximately 50 minutes to an hour, and then um, we will have uh, another one of the guys that serves on the apologetics team here at Watermark, on the Great Questions team, um, come up, and the three of us will serve as kind of a panel, and as the class goes, then um, ask, uh, if you have a question that comes to mind, which you probably will as we're talking then write that question down or log it away in your brain. And then the last 30 minutes of the class will be an interaction between the three of us and whatever questions you guys have. Okay, Um, so there's a microphone right over here. I'll remind you guys about that um, once we get to that point in the class. But every single night, um, that will be the format. There will be 45 minutes to an hour of teaching up here, and then there will be um, 30 to 40 minutes or so of interaction between a, a panel. Um, the panel will always consist of people that serve on the apologetics team here at Watermark, people who have been vetted and we consider um, at least uh, well-versed in all of these issues. And um, so we'll, we can interact in that way. Definitely, uh, definitely think that's probably the most valuable thing that can come out of this is that interaction time. So please, when it comes time to ask questions, um, don't be afraid to stand up and, and, uh, ask your question. It can literally, it's carte blanche, like ask whatever you want. Um, how many of y'all have been to great questions on a Monday night? Um, handful of you. Um, so if you've been to great questions, you know what that's like. You can literally ask whatever you want. We would, the only thing, the only stipulation is we would ask that whatever question you are asking pertains to the information that we're talking about, you know, here tonight. Don't get up and ask, hey, hey why is the sky blue? You know, um, we'll probably, well, that's an easy one. So, um, we would just answer it easily and be like, okay, that's it. Um, next. <laughs> so anyway, so here's the six questions. Week one, is there truth and can we know it? Okay. Um, that we're going to talk about, obviously talk about that tonight. And that's not typically a question that you get a lot from people. Um, there's probably, I would guess, probably not a whole lot of us have interacted with people that have said, Um, that have just approached us and been like, oh, you're a Christian? Well, is there truth? How do you know truth? Um, That's typically not something uh, that you're going to interact with people about. So why is it one of the tough questions um, in in our list of six? And the reason why is because um, in our experience, and I think in, in probably your experience as well, I think across the board it's a safe thing to say that whatever question somebody is asking the presuppositions behind their question are the things that are actually driving their question. And so um, the ability to discern um, uh, why someone is saying what they're saying, the worldview that is the underlying uh, basis and foundation for them, knowing what they know and questioning the way they question, is this question. Is there truth? How do we know truth? How do you know what you know? Um, so we're going to walk through that tonight because, as um, as we'll repeat quite frequently, there will be um, uh, a lot of times. In fact, probably every single time that you're inter- interacting with someone who is asking tough questions, this is the skill that you need to begin to discipline yourself in. That as you're listening to them, you're you're determining, okay, why are you saying what you're saying. What are the presuppositions that are driving you to ask this question that, frankly, are probably largely unquestioned in your life? You may not, have even, you may not even know that those are there, but they're driving the way that you think. So that's what we're going to cover tonight. Um, also, uh, there's a great book, and we'll, we'll end up having some copies that you can buy here in a couple of weeks. We didn't have any for tonight, which is my bad, but if you want to go on Amazon, you can also do that. Um, But there's a guy named Greg Kokel. He wrote a book called Tactics. Um, The thing I would tell you as far as this goes is that apologetics is never about answering a question. Okay? It's never about answering a question. It is always about interacting with and answering a person. Okay? Um, One of the worst things we can do is continue to um, pit ourselves against the people who are asking the tough questions To try to like prove them wrong, or for us to be right, or thinking that the whole history of Christendom weighs on this or pivots on our answer to this tough question, you know, and feel the pressure of that to where we're like, oh, I've got to get this right, and ultimately it ends up turning into a battle, which just plays into the culture wars that are already out there. And so, what we want to train you to do is to um, effectively and skillfully um, interact not with the question somebody's asking, but with the person who's asking the question. Um, and this book is a great book. It's one of the best ones that I've seen out there that's accessible on a lay level um, that, that helps you understand how do I effectively interact with this individual who's made in the image of God and is loved by God and, and, uh, and whom, God is, um, whom God wants to save. Um, so definitely encourage you to pick that up. It's, uh, uh, you obviously, you can get it online, but then if you uh, don't get it online, we'll have some copies here in a few weeks that you can buy for like 10 bucks, you know, something like that, at the door. Okay? Um, Well, let me pray for our time, and then um, I'll introduce our first teacher. Heavenly Father, we we truly um, humble ourselves before you. Um, The fact that we're even able to put any rational thought together and that my mind is able to put any kind of thought together, even into a sentence to where my vocal cords can... Say this and communicate with you, and my mind is tracking with you. the The, the very fact that I can even do this at all um, is uh, is attributed to you, and so um, we fully recognize that we are um, en- encountering on a um, uh, uh, embarking on a journey that ultimately ends with you. And so, um, so Father, in the name of Your Son Jesus, and by the power of Your Spirit. Um, We pray that, um, as Jesus claimed, that he's the teacher, and um, so we we pray that through the Spirit that you would come and teach, Um, that you would use our feeble attempt um, at uh, communicating um, to effectively um, equip your body um, for the work of the ministry. We love you, we offer you this time, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, David Larson is, uh, well, he's right there. <laughs> um, he is one of our key leaders um, in the Great Questions ministry. He's really, um, uh, he's, a, he's, he's a gifted mind. I would say he's probably one of the, the most gifted minds uh, at our church. Um, and he is currently, uh, he got his master's degree from Dallas Seminary. I'm not even going to say the year, man. <laughs> Yeah, Paul was, Paul's still alive, right? Um, uh, ah, Christian jokes, right? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, he got his THM, his Master of Theology from Dallas Seminary, and he's currently working on his PhD um, from St. Mary's um, in, in London, okay, um, so across the pond, um, and is, uh, is writing his dissertation on uh, placemaking, which if you're interested in that, here's your guy. Um, but man, the, the Lord's really gifted him uh, to think rightly um, about this stuff and um, we're privileged to have him. So y'all give it up for David Larson.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, first of all, when we, um, when we began preparing for this, uh, the the question was first, propose let's let's talk about what is truth. And and as we thought about it and assessed am I coming through okay? I guess? Anyway, we'll say I am. Um, as as we um, assessed what the culture is like, we realized that there's a different question really that, that is that is pertinent to our day and it's not what is truth. But is there even truth? For, for example, if, if um, someone is an atheist and, uh, and, is, and views life as being um, evolved uh, godlessly, uh, there's plenty of Christians that hold to evolution that, that, that would believe it's by God's doing. Uh, but let's say someone who says that there is no God, I'm an atheist, we just evolved from a big bang, and, and we're here. Uh, and and uh, that person would say, uh, there is no truth. There's no one to hold me accountable. There is, there's absolutely no truth. At the other end of our cultural spectrum, there is um, a, ver- a version of postmodernism that would, that would completely disagree with our atheist friend and say, you could not be more wrong there's thousands of truths. As many as there are people, there are truths. So um, in in this case, going back to the days of of, of uh, the Bible, when Pilate um, and Jesus were dialoguing, and Pilate says, so you're a king, and Jesus replies, you say that I'm a king for this reason, I was born for this reason. I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate scoffingly said, what is truth? Well, apparently things have changed since since Pilate's day. If he were alive today, he wouldn't say, what is truth? He'd scoffingly say, is there truth? So um, I'd like to talk about this and look at some of the underlying questions that that uh, go into this. While well, 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 I've been working on my, my dissertation, I've uh, begun looking at literary theory, and, and uh, while I'm in biblical theology, I'm, I'm also having to do literary theory. And, and I've been shocked at how all of this, as I'm reading what I'm about to show you in a high-level presentation, is just like playing out in the news every day. So if nothing else, it'll connect some dots for you as to why are people doing what they're doing. Um, But uh, one of the questions that that is the underlying question is, uh, what is meaning and what is existence? Those are pretty heavy duty, dissertation level sort of questions. Um, Plato and Aristotle might have answered this question of um, what, what is meaning and what is existence. And they would say, well, uh, I, I, think, I think the real truth is the ideal idea. The ideal chair, in my mind or in, in philosophy, that's true. That's a true chair. Aristotle would say, no way. You couldn't be more wrong. It's the chair is the real chair, and your ideas are just replicas. And they went back and forth. And and, in, and as the centuries passed, some guys, uh, um, um, Newton, Leibniz, Descartes, said, I think I can answer this. I think I can answer what is meaning and and uh, what is existence. and And, and the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to just think. I'm going to use my brain and try to assess... The great principles of life, and and then and then I think I can conclude. What is tr- what is truth? What is meaning? What is existence? Fast forward a couple hundred uh, years, and a guy named Kant um, and another gentleman named Husserl said, "Ha! You could not be more wrong." The mind can only begin to tap the surface of what is real you cannot even begin to know what lies outside of you in all its fullness and all of its dimensions you 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 have to experience it to just begin to understand and so they said you have to uh, they they concluded that it has to be through experience that that you come to to understand all this, so at at about this point you 're probably thinking, Wow, this is really getting pretty deep, pretty quick and and i, and, and I don 't mean to do that to you so um, you uh, you ask, well, how do I know uh, what meaning is and and, um, and and existence and and why why should I um, even bother to listen to all of this so there's a couple implications on, on why you should know what meaning, existence, and truth is. One is morality, ethics, social issues, and justice. There's probably several more. But how do you go about answering questions like, is same-sex marriage okay? Um, if you have a body of truth... You answer it according to your body of truth. If you don't, um, you answer it by by in, by a default whatever is tolerant. Um, so so that's how you answer that question. You ask uh, there's there's a uh, the issue of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Uh, just this, this about a week ago, uh, the the Prime Minister of Israel announced he's going to uh, to London. Uh, to attend a meeting, and within a day or two, there were 85,000 petitions, and it only takes 100,000 to get it past that, uh, to get it mandated, uh, to, to when he arrives, to convict him of war crimes. 85,000 uh, people uh, um, signed that petition. Um, in in um, Israel, uh, the, how, do you, how do you answer, is it fair... For a Palestinian Christian to have his house plowed down, I'm not talking about a Palestinian or a, or a Jewish person. I'm talking what we would consider our side, um, and what role should we have in in um, addressing that? And so, so, and so it goes on and on. So, anyway. A lot of these uh, issues—morality, ethics, social issues, Planned Parenthood—you um, uh, um, could you could go all, all, all down the whole list are going to anchor be babies. Anchor babies, yeah. I mean, gonna, uh, yeah, are going to be answered by your your truth presupposition. So let's 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 think. How did we get here? Um, and I'll try to fast forward you through this. Um, but the, the um, first person that I would pick the action up with is uh, Sigmund Freud in, in the 1800s. What, what makes him significant is he was the one who proposed that you need to start looking inside yourself, and, and, and he's the father of, of uh, psychoanalysis, and, and and from that came subjective truth. Next... Fast forward to the mid uh, to late 1800s, and you have Karl Marx. Now, these are, these are not necessarily one influencing the other, but they're all products of this environment that is building in the 1800s. And Karl Marx uh, issues the Communist uh, Manifesto, and in it, he rejects ideology. Why is it that you, you do? Well, it's because you're a capitalist. Um, he lives in London. He sees the Industrial Revolution taking place and the poor people being taken advantage of while the, while the extremely wealthy uh, take advantage of the poor people. And he says, this is not right. And, and all of your justifications on why you think it's right is because of your ideology. And everything you tell me in, in your defense, I suspect and, it, and um, he begins what's called the hermeneutic of suspicion, but it's, I don't trust you. I don't, I want to know why you're saying what you say. It, 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 it reminds me a lot of questions that would be asked in the debates. Um, so from, from, uh, from him, you have uh, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who says, God is dead. Now, that's bad, uh, as as a Christian, that's 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 bad. We don't think God is dead, um, but why did he why did he say that? Well, because he wanted morals and morality dead, um, and so he uh, wrote that God is dead, and and, um, and 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 attacked in his second book uh, morals. The third, the fourth person, excuse me, um, fast forward into the 20th century, and Roland Barthes uh, writes about the death of the author. Uh, by that, he means uh, it, Shakespeare's Hamlet. We don't, we don't need to know what Shakespeare was thinking. What does it mean to you? Um, We we don't need to know about crime and punishment. What does it mean to you? Um, In fact, there's no way to know what uh, is in uh, the author's mind. So it's all a matter of what it means to you. For example, take a look at at Mona Lisa. If you've been to the Louvre, it's one of the most popular areas uh, packed with people and you you see them all just standing there looking at it just wondering about it well um it doesn't matter what leonardo da vinci had in mind when he when he wrote about uh mona, when he uh painted the mona lisa because the, not only is the author dead but the artist is dead but but to to a, a renaissance expert they would look at that and go wow Finally, they're getting out of the halo around the woman thing and, and um, Ma- Mary Magdalene holding baby Jesus. Finally, humanism is coming of age. Um, the uh, romanticists would go, ah, it's the beginnings of, of nature scenery and love of ecology and, and the nature. And look, at, look, they're painting trees. And it's not dark, it's, it's light. And um, and some someone else would look at it and go, sexists. He was a pure sexist, just keeping w- women in their place. Um, whereas a feminist would look at it and say, I'm not quite so sure that's the case. You see that little grin in her mouth? Um, she's saying, uh, I'm, I'm about to, to see my day in in the sun. And so each person has their own interpretation of the art. There is no author. What the author meant doesn't matter. Um, it's what you think it is. Um, that led to uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, who wrote The Death of the Meta-Narrative, which sounds like, what in the world is that about? But it's about the grand story. You believe the Bible has a story to it? That's the meta narrative of the Bible. He he says there is no meta narrative. Um, there is no story, no message. It's all random and meaningless. There is no story. There is no message, and that leads to uh, Jacques Derrida, who passed away about a decade ago, who who spoke of the death of the text. What, what that means is, with the death of the text came the birth of the reader. You read the Bible, what does it mean to you? You, you read the newspaper, what did you get out of it? Um, in fact, you might get something out of it totally different tomorrow because the author doesn't matter, the message doesn't matter, and the text is so unstable, you, there is no meaning in the text. There's millions of meanings in the text. So, There is no single text, but thousands of readings of any text. Now, let's let's think about what does this do to Christianity? There is no author. There is no message. And there is no text. Kind of sounds like the Garden of Eden. Um, Is there really a God who told you that? Does he really have a message that you shouldn't touch that? And were his words precisely what you think they were? Because if there's no author, no message, no test, there's no meaning and no truth. So, um, is there truth? Uh, Culture says uh, truth originates within an independent individual. It, it might be yourself. It, it, it originates with you, within your culture, whatever. There, there, uh, there is, the There God's been taken out of the equation. Um, the story of the Bible, the story of the message has been taken out. Uh, the um, text itself can mean thousands of things, so it really means basically nothing. And... It's now up to you to decide how to determine what is true. On the other hand, Christianity would say, "I generally don't agree with you, but I don't completely disagree." I, I'm amazed in when, when I do great questions, and you get the. The, the question: Are we doing evil in in this? Yeah, well, you get the question of um, why is there evil, and how could a good God allow for such evil? As as if there's some giant um, Congress that God Himself will be held accountable to someday. That that will that will ask Him, give an account. Did you abide by the the demands of truth? Did you abide by the demands of goodness? Um, our God is truthful. Our God is is um, good, uh, but there is no outside authority like Plato would have had us believe of an ideal board of truth, the the truth police, the cosmic truth police are not going to come and arrest God uh, for his for his failings. Um, so we uh, we generally agree that there's there is not an independent standard. However. Truth itself is defined by God himself. Notice the, the great questions or great statements of the, uh, of the Bible. Thy word is truth. It always ties it into God. God defines what's true. If there's a time and place where you can't eat pork, he gets to decide it. I guess that's the rights and privileges of being God. If there's a if if he decides to reverse that, that's the rights and privileges of of being God. Um, his word is true. His judgments are true. There's a there's a phrase in uh, the Hebrew text that uh, underscores my point. The um, in the eyes of, you think back to to, the, to those great passages from Kings and. Chronicles, where this king did good in the eyes of God, this king did evil in the eyes of God. Um, you think to Genesis, where God looks and saw and determined it is good. Um, you think to the the words of of God to uh, um, Eve and to to Adam that if that this will make you wise in your eyes. This this it's 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 perception. It's um, it's uh, a person is, is deciding it. In our case, it's the eyes of the Lord. Truth is a person, not a body of ideals. Truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. And the life. He did not say, "I am the way to the truth." I don't lead you into the truth. I am the truth. I will lead you. The Spirit will lead you. But you will be led into me and my thoughts and my ways. Um, Jesus is the truth. At this point, Nathan. Yeah. It's. uh... Uh, Yeah. Thanks.
0: So this reminds me as he's talking, especially the whole in the eyes of aspect of this whole conversation. Anybody familiar with the book of Judges? Anybody read Judges lately? What's one of the common phrases that's repeated in that book? Do you know? It says, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, right? So as we, as we now, I mean, what David took us through with that was, I think, really important because I think if we're ever even going to. Engage people on their worldview and how, why they're thinking, what they're thinking, why, why they're thinking, how they're thinking, um, and in answering some of the tough questions that they're asking, you have to realize that we are in any time that you're trying to defend the Christian position. Um, which again, I don't want to, I don't want to pit this as like a, a adding to the culture war, like they're the enemy and you're the good guy and it's time to win, you know. Um, but as you're engaging an individual. You need to understand that the vast majority, just get on social media for five minutes, you know, and see the interactions that are going on over Facebook and Twitter and all of these platforms around people who are, um, I mean, for, for the vast majority of our culture, like this is, I mean, scripture is, or their, their standard for knowing is what they believe is right in their own eyes. And so you, I mean, we live in a, what we would call a a relativistic society. Like, well, hey, as long as it's not harming you, then, you know, go ahead, do it. In fact, I think one of the biggest, I was talking to my wife about this today. So um, I think one of the biggest um, problems that our justice system is going to have over the next, however long it lasts um, until we figure it out, um, is where does someone's rights end and my rights begin? Right, Because in a relativistic society, like, me and my individual rights is all there is. And so um, trying to figure out, like, well, can I truly hold to a religious system that, that, um, that whereby my conscience is guarded by the Constitution, and yet at the same time have a society where, whereby the, my religious belief, quote-unquote, infringes on someone else's right to do whatever they want, right? This is a conundrum that we're in, like... No doubt about it. And so um, when you have a society where everyone is doing right by their own, in their own eyes, then ultimately you have an inversion of, of, uh, of, of what the rest of the class I'm going to take you through. It really is the garden. It really is the serpent whispering into the, into the ear of Eve, hey, did God really say this? Right? Um, is there truly a standard that you need to live by? Can you really do whatever you want and just not experience the consequences of what that's going to end up functionally look like looking like in your own life? Right. So you just need to understand from the get go when we're in, when we are engaging people with the, in answering these tough questions that that are common. I mean, we do it all the time. Sometimes all day, every day, it can get exhausting. <laughs> um, but as you're answering people, then understanding where they're coming from, understanding that our culture is in the same situation that, um, at, that Israel was in the book of Judges, where everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And I'm just telling you, go back and read Judges. It does not work. Okay? Call me a prophet, call me whatever. Just, I just prefer myself to be, or call myself a Bible reader, like uh, uh, someone who pays attention to history. It does not work work. So, I mean, frankly, I think you could easily just, you know, from a just a pragmatic standpoint, a functionality, like can we function as a society like this? And the answer, it may take us a while to get there, but the answer is going to be a resounding no. It doesn't work. Right? Um so, but we need to be thinking about it. We need to be thinking about it because we need to be able to identify and say, "Hey, um, you know, uh, Bill or whatever is asking me this question, and I need, as 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 um, a fellow human being who's also made in the image of God, who loves Him and wants to engage His heart and His life with the with the life changing, transforming message of Jesus Christ, um, I need to be able to look past his tough question and to be able to evaluate um, these presuppositions that he is. Um, how did he get where he is? And you need to be able to understand that if you're going to effectively both listen to him and also engage him with the truth of the gospel, okay? So this, this stuff is actually uh, essential, no doubt about it. I want to talk to you uh, now about this big word called epistemology, all right? Epistemology defined is simply, um, just. I mean, just turn to Webster and look at it, right? Epistemology is the study or theory of the nature and grounds of knowledge. Epistemology is the study of how do you know what you know? Um, so everybody has opinions, Right? Not, and, and I would say probably less than half of us are actually um, engaging with um, the, uh, the presuppositions that are where we're saying, okay, I know this, and also this is how I know this. This is how I've arrived here. In fact, one of the questions that Kokul talks about in his book called Tactics, there's three essential questions that he asks people. He says... Um, uh, the first one, and I use it all the time, is when someone says something, I'll, say, I'll answer them with a question and say, what do you mean by that? When you say that, you know, uh, when you say that uh, I'm infringing on your right or my opinion is bigoted or whatever, like, what, what, do, you mean, what do you mean by that? Or is that, and typically what will happen is you'll, you'll immediately find out that, that the vast majority of people are just regurgitating culture speak that they've heard through the culture, and they're not really thinking for themselves. They're just emotionally throwing up on you, you know? And so, which is okay. I mean, um, one of the, our responsibilities as followers of Jesus is to recognize that that's what's going on and to gently engage them in that um, area, to love them with the love of Christ, to show grace and respect and kindness. 1 Peter chapter 3, um, verse 16, uh, 15 and 16, um, uh, set apart Christ. Um, alone in your hearts, right? Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that you have in you, um, but do so with gentleness and respect, right? A lot of people leave that part out. Don't leave that part out, right? Um, don't be a. Um, if this wasn't being recorded, I'd drop another word. But don't be a, a you know don't be a jerk about it. Okay, um, I was going to say something else, but I'd get in trouble. <laughs> My wife would get me in trouble. <clears throat> anyway. Yeah, don't be a jerk. Like, um, show people the love of Christ, because you need to understand. Like I have um, just said, one of the, the biggest influences on people's knowledge and their source of knowledge is culture. I mean, guess what? Guess where the vast majority of people are drawing their sources of knowledge, or, or that's influencing that source of knowledge, culture. And you know what the scary part is? Is most of it's like like I said before, social media, right? There are all these cultural terms that are, that are being thrown out there. And, and at the end of the day, you're sitting there going, man, I feel, like that I'm, um, I feel like I'm engaging someone who's not actually thinking critically about their position. They're just regurgitating stuff to me. And so just understanding that not only the people who are coming to you are influenced by their culture, but guess what? Um, we're not exempt from this, right? We also are influenced by our culture. Um, every single day, it's funny, like, the, it's the, the people, uh, you know, that, that, uh, wanna, that are constantly rebelling against the established order um, and just want to be different, like, um, it's like, hey, I just want to be different. I want to be different. I want to be different. It's like, yeah, in your attempt to be different, we're all the same, right? Um, that, that it's, uh, you're just uh, molding into um, what, the, what the culture is is uh, speaking, is communicating, is giving you the message um, to adapt to. And, and people do it all day, every day, especially when they don't know that they're doing it. Okay? Um, another influence on knowledge is, is um, and this is where, we, from a Christian perspective, we do want to frame it in this, we do want to frame the conversation in this, in this language, and that is there are spiritual powers at play. Right? The Holy Spirit is moving to establish and promote truth right? Because the Holy Spirit is is representing Christ. And Jesus said, I am the truth. So when you're encountering the person of, 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 of God, the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, you are literally encountering the truth. Um, everything that God does is true. Everything he says is true. Um, and so you have the Holy Spirit working representing the Father and the Son and, and, and is moving in our hearts, uh, in us, and among us, and, and, uh, and using us to influence the world around us. But then we also are running roughshod against the world, the flesh, and the enemy. See Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Right? That's where Paul lays out and just says, hey, these are, this is what is influencing culture. This is what's influencing the world all the time. One of the other influences on people's knowledge is their physiological disposition. Some people are born um, a certain way to say, uh, I mean, I was born a certain way to, I naturally question almost everything. Um, like sometimes to a fault where it's like, um, sometimes, uh, you know, it's when somebody says something, I'm, my first thought is not like, oh, that's a really good point. My first thought is how do you know that? How did you come to arrive at that? What do you mean? You know, I'm, I'm naturally inquisitive. And so, um, and, so, and other people, um, are, 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 just take stuff hook, line, and sinker. It's like they have a physiological disposition that their personality is such that they're like, oh, man, that's amazing. It makes perfect sense. Okay, cool. I'm going to drive on, you know, and they don't even think to question it. And so just the physiological disposition that we're born with is going to lend itself one way or the other um, to how we're influenced um, uh, by, by um, what culture is saying and, and therefore influence on how we think, how we interact with that information. Um, and then lastly, your personal background, your history, this is your own personal lens that you view your world through and everybody has it. I mean, I am shaped. I I mean, I grew up in Arkansas. I grew up in the Southern Baptist church. I went to a Southern Baptist university. I went to a, um, a conservative seminary to get my master's degree. I joined the army and was an infantryman and I deployed twice to Afghanistan and, and saw combat there. That definitely influenced my life. And now I work in a church, and I'm married, and I have two kids, and I have a family. My parents are still married. They love one another. I have siblings. All of those experiences um, shape the way that I view the world that I live in. And, and it's the same way f- for you. It's the same way for everybody. So your own personal history, your own personal background, we're going to touch on this here in a few minutes, but, um, but this is profoundly important because if you're going to, um, if you're going to um, uh, acknowledge what is true, then one of the keys to acknowledging what's true is is to know yourself. Right? A lot of people um, don't know themselves. They, they buy things hook, line, and sinker, and all right, cool, got it, um, because they don't understand all of the factors that are going into, okay, why do you respond like that? Why would you think like that? What are the reasons that, um, that, that uh, are the foundation for, um, you knowing what you know. So now we're going to transition to actual sources of authority. Um, what are the, f- and, and I, I think that there's, there's probably more than this, but I think the five ones are, uh, these five sources of authority are probably um, the ones that we're going to run up against the most, okay? The first one is Scripture. Um, and that basically is just that God has spoken, He has spoken through His Word, And that um, if God, like David said, says something is true, then if God exists and God has spoken, then what he speaks is true. Period. I mean, that's actually the definition of truth. Um, If God exists, which see week three about the historicity of the resurrection, all right, and, and, and if Jesus is who he said he is, and he did say that I am the truth, and he did rise from the dead, then he's true, <laughs> all right? I mean, it's, it's pretty simple from a, um, a Christian perspective. Obviously, it can get complicated when you're unpacking it, but it's actually fairly simple. The second source of authority is tradition. Um, what, have, what has been the long line of people who have gone before us? What have they believed? What have they said? Because um, really, I, th- I believe it was, uh, was it Pascal or um, someone else who said, um, I, I only see as far as I do because I stand on the shoulder of giants, right? Um, it was either, who was it? Do you know? And whatever, some dude, um, he's famous. And if I remembered his name, you would know it, Uh, but I don't remember his name. So whatever. Um, so he says, "I, I, I only see as far as I do because I stand on the shoulder of giants. And he's, he's acknowledging that I am deeply influenced by my tradition. Um, in fact, I think all of us are deeply influenced by our tradition. Again, if you don't know what your tradition is and all the things that have played that played themselves into your tradition, then um, I would say that um, you're you're stumped in your ability to know yourself, to be able to articulate this is why I believe what I believe. Um, reason, um, just our ability to uh, put things together into our um, uh, into th- things that make sense in our minds, into a workable. Um, formula, our own experience. This is huge. Um, and the fact that as we are thinking, our our ideas, our beliefs about things are running into the real world. And the real world and our experiences in the real world are shaping the way that we think. So, I mean, just for instance, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm discipling, <laughs> um, is what I like to call it, but I'm, I'm parenting uh, my two-year-old son who kind of wants to get into everything, right? And so we tell him, son, I just pulled this toast out of the oven and the pan is really hot. So don't reach up there and grab a piece of toast yet. It's not cool enough for you to touch it yet. So you got it. He's like, uh uh-huh, you know, and you're like, yeah, we'll see, you know. So you kind of like step back or you go doing something else. And the next thing you hear is this shrieking, you know, loud cry from a two-year-old, ah, you know, And you're just like, dude, freaking touch the dadgum pan. I told him not to, you know. And so seriously, like if you look at my son's forearm, he has a mark right here, from, from him reaching up, he was trying to grab a piece of toast and that pan that touched on his forearm and burned the heck out of him, you know? And I told my wife later, I was like, I think that'll probably be the only time he does that, you know? Because it burned him pretty good. I mean, yeah, like blistered up and we had to, you know, put keep uh, medicine on it and all that jazz. <clears throat> but for him, that experience shaped what he believes about the oven and when stuff comes out of the oven, whether I should touch it or not, right? Um, so, um, just acknowledging that experience is actually a, a really powerful um, source of authority and what we believe, um, why we believe what we believe. And then lastly, I would say emotion um, is, is, uh, um, definitely plays into this. And I think ultimately, um, a lot of, for a lot of people, emotion is probably the strongest or the loudest source of authority in their lives. What you need to understand is all five of these sources of authority are constantly... Um, and simultaneously working in your mind. There's never a time where you believe something where it's separate from, and this is obviously from a Christian perspective, where it's separate from your belief about God, um, the tradition that you've been a part of, whether you know it or not, um, the, uh, your ability to reason, to place things into a workable um, a paradigm framework in your mind that makes sense to you, your experiences about your beliefs, what you feel about your beliefs, all of those things are constantly and simultaneously firing at the same time in your life. Okay? The question becomes, um, which one should carry the most weight? Which one should be the loudest? If this is a soundboard, right, and you're mixing your belief system, um, then which one should be turned up the loudest? Well, let's examine each one of these over the next um, 10, 10 minutes or so and then we'll uh, uh, ask some questions. And then, again, I'm going to remind you, as you do have questions, write those down or log them away, because here in about 10 or 12 minutes, um, maybe 15 minutes, we're going to open up for questions, and um, it's mainly going to be on you guys, whether you want to talk or not, right? Um, So be brave, ask your question. The authority of Scripture... The strength of the authority of Scripture is that it is, from a Christian perspective, obviously, it is the final authority for Christian faith and practice. Um, like I said before, we believe that God is. We believe that God has spoken. Um, he's spoken first through, um, through, him, through his, his actually physically speaking to people um, in, uh, through the nation of Israel as Yahweh interacted with the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, throughout the history of Israel, he has spoken to them through uh, Moses, through the law, through the prophets, um, the the totality of that experience um, being um, uh, what God's message is to us, um, to Israel first, and then to the nations, um, which is we are the nations, the, the, uh, uh, um, the Gentiles. And then ultimately, Jesus shows up and he says, oh, by the way, um, and you guys who took the Life of Christ class, right? Y'all are experts at this now, right? Um, Is Jesus showed up and said, hey, you know, Moses and the scriptures and the totality of all of scripture, it's talking about me, right? So, you know, the tabernacle and the whole worship sacrificial system that, that Yahweh instituted among the people of Israel, that entire sacrificial system is about me. It points to me. I am the center, right? This was Jesus' claim about himself. It's to, if, if he's not that, then it's totally insane, you know? I mean, we got, we got like nuthouses for people like that, right? And so Jesus is, but Jesus is making this claim about himself, ultimately, like we've already covered a couple of times tonight, where Jesus says, I am the truth. There is no truth apart from me, right? I am the standard by which truth is, is measured, um, if I say something it 's my prerogative to say this is true, and it is true always right? and so we get in 2 Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen and seventeen um, this idea that look, all of scripture is god breathed it is inspired is, is kind of that uh, sense that this what we have is, is, uh, is inspired by god and 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 to unpack that even a little bit further is this is exactly what God wants for us to have, right? There's nothing about Scripture that, is not, that, that God is not behind going, that is what I want to communicate to you, right? It's God-breathed. Um, it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness. Um, so it has this practical element. Not only is it true that you can teach it because it's true, you can rebuke because it's true. You can correct because there's a standard to correct off of. It will actually change your life and develop in you a righteousness so that not everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes. You're doing what's right, right in the eyes of the Lord. Right? Because what is in the eyes of the Lord is true. <coughs> Excuse me. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work the danger of, of the authority of Scripture, and now hear me, um, because this is a huge danger. We deal with this all the time. It's crazy. The danger of it is what we would call an isolated hermeneutic. What, what I mean, hermeneutic is just a big word that just means this is the methodology by which you interpret Scripture. So, so people are consistently asking me, like, hey, how can we all be reading the same Bible and come up with a thousand different interpretations of the same verse, right? Have I mean, you guys ever thought about that before? Well, this is why. Because people are, are, are typically um, doing um, hermeneutics in isolation. They're not considering all of the, the things that go into... Um, what a solid biblical hermeneutic is or a methodology for interpreting scripture. And so people just sit down with their Bible and they, how many of y'all have ever done it? Some of y'all maybe have done this. I did it um, before I knew any better, right? And that's when you just sit down and you're like, Lord, I'm gonna open my Bible. I'm gonna cut I'm it. It's almost like this like weird like Ouija board thing, you know? It's like, I'm gonna open my Bible. And I'm gonna be like, mm, yeah, I feel it. I feel it. Oh, there it is. Oh, praise him! You know that's exactly what God wanted me to here today. You know it's this weird, like, um, uh, mistaking emotion for scripture. How do you feel about? Um, how do you feel about what the text is telling you? Um, and so, really, ultimately, we are even in Christian circles doing exactly what Roland Barth was saying. Like, look, the, the the meaning is determined from within you, the way you feel about it, the way you think about it. That that just must be what's true. And this is a real danger. I mean, we see it all the time. Um, but we believe that, no, God God is not dead. The author is still alive. The author has intent. The author has purposes. There's context around what he's saying. There's a way to interpret what the author meant that, to where we can accurately apply it to our lives instead of sitting around in a daggum Bible study and going, hey, let's read this verse. What does that mean to you? Right? If anybody ever does that, just shut your Bible, get up, and leave. Okay? That, I'm serious. That should be what you do. Because you're not doing any kind of like actual um, biblical hermeneutics there. You're just mistaking emotion for Scripture. Well, this is what I think it means. This is how I feel about it. It's like, well, okay, um, let's, let's be better than that. Let's, let's do the work um, that, that's required of us i um, not saying that emotion is, 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 is not playing itself in. It just shouldn't be the thing that drives the entire train. Um, emotions are great servants. They're horrible masters, right? Um, anyway, <clears throat> the authority of tradition. The strength of tradition is that it provides a stream of orthodoxy and established parameters. So definitely, like, when, we, when you start, in fact, when I was learning about Trinitarianism um, and really solidifying what I believed about um, the Trinity, um, th- there are plenty of champions of orthodoxy that have gone before me that I referenced to say, hey, here are the church fathers who defended this doctrine very early on. Like early on, as far back as ultimately, I mean, I don't think there's any kind of well, te- well, no, there's no textual variant in Matthew 28, 19, when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the na- nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the holy spirit. I think that that the reason that the that the early church, the primitive church believed in the the deity of the father and the son and then ultimately the holy spirit is because this is what Jesus taught them. Right? It's original to Christ. And so when you go back and you see that you see these men who who knew the apostles, the apostles, then the men who knew the apostles, then the church fathers who are establishing and defending orthodoxy, then when when you're attempting to shape your belief about what um, uh, what is, then you're able to reference these guys to be like, "Hey, um, what were their parameters and why?" Um, it provides that um, tradition does, and it's I mean it's it's irreplaceable. It's it's absolutely um, essential. The danger is placing tradition on the same authoritative level as scripture. So that's um, and I think the clearest um, you know uh, way that I've seen people do this is out of the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. This is Catechism 82 and 97, just kind of put spliced splice together. But it says this, Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Sacred tradition and sacred Scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the Word of God. And so here you see in, in the Roman Catholic tradition is that, yes, Scripture is authoritative, but equally authoritative is our tradition. Um, that, that uh, flows um, out of um, that. And, and that's where we as, I mean, at least for me, as a Protestant, I'm like, ah, I'm going to separate myself from you there. Um, where, where tradition um, will f- uh, run against what is clearly taught in Scripture, then we must separate from tradition and not the other way around, right? The authority of reason. Um, the strength of reason is when it's ordered under God, it provides the framework for piecing together reality. There's no way that you can separate yourself from reasoning. Every thought you that you've ever had is 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 a reasoning. Um, It's it's how you frame it's how you frame the um, uh, it's how you frame your reality, how you see the world, how you interact with people. Um, Does do things make sense to you or not? Um, The the danger of reason is that reason is reason without God. So this is attempting to know anything apart from. God, which, which is what David covered earlier, that is naturalism, um, which is the belief, this, this kind of Darwinian evolution, uh, materialism, um, that the only thing that is real are the things that we can um, taste, touch, hear, feel, um, and see, right? The five senses. And so, um, and, and everything else is, is unknowable or is not real, and, and um, ultimately we become the source of our own knowledge, which, hey, that's pretty scary, right? Right. Um, at least it is for me. I don't know about you guys. The danger of, of, of placing reason above everything else um, and, and uh, making it chief is that, is that um, regarding reason as the chief source and test of knowledge. Um, this is what Rene Descartes did. It's, again, uh, harking back to what David said. You have know, this philosopher who says, hey, um, I think, and because I think and reason and have awareness... I I am, I am. My reason is defining my own reality, right? Here is one of the best quotes that I've seen against naturalism. And frankly, um, just personally, as a side note, this is why I believe. Well, one of the reasons that I'm, we can be anything, but we cannot be naturalists. We can be anything, but you cannot be a Darwinian evolutionist. And here, and this I think is why I've never seen anybody. give me a satisfactory response to this quote I'm about to show you, okay? Um, and this is it. If the solar system was brought about by an accidental collision, which is the claim of naturalism, the, this, this random chance life that, that it comes out of nothing, um, then the appearance of organic life on this planet was also an accident. And the whole evolution of man was an accident too. If so, then all our present thoughts are mere accidents, the accidental byproduct of the movement of atoms. And this holds, this holds for the thoughts of the materialists and astronomers as well for anybody else. But if their thoughts, of, uh, um, for example, of materialism and astronomy, are mere accidental byproducts, why should we believe them to be true? I see no reason for believing that one accident should be able to give a correct account of all of the other accidents. It's like expecting that the accidental shape taken by the splash when you upset a milk jug should give you a correct account of how the jug was made and why it was upset. Right? If naturalism is true, then all of the thoughts, whatever, would be wholly the result of irrational causes. Therefore, all thoughts would be equally worthless. Therefore, naturalism is worthless. If naturalism is true, then you can know no truths. It cuts its own throat. Right? That's why, whatever we are, we can't be naturalists. Okay? Because the entire framework for how they reason is based on an accident. Um, And all of the subsequent acts are also accidents. And if your thoughts are accidents, why do you believe them? What is the standard by which you say, oh, yeah, that's true? I don't know. Good luck with that one, man. Daggum, dude. Authority of experience. Oh, by the way, that was C.S. Lewis. And if you haven't read him, get anything you can by him and read it. <clears throat> Authority of experience. Um, when Scripture is integrated with the Spirit's work in real life, experiences can be a vehicle to grow in the knowledge of God. We see this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So you see inexperience as, an, as a source of authority. You see, as you take what God has revealed um, to us through Scripture, through his son that is testifying about His Son, that, is being, that we're able to know through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we apply these things and are obedient to the Word of the Lord, we are, um, through that experiencing, growing in the knowledge of God. So there is both Scripture and experience um, that are playing into one another, and our experience can, a- can actually um, validate and, and help us to gain new insight into what the text is actually saying, because we're applying it, we're growing actually in the knowledge of God. Uh, The danger is empiricism. And all empiricism is, is just believing that all knowledge originates in experience. In other words, um, if I can't experience it, or if my experience of that is bad, then I reject it, right? And that's where I'm like, okay, again, you've put the car before the horse. Um, Experience is important, but it's not the most important thing. Lastly, the authority of emotion. When ordered under God... Emotion can serve as an integral aspect of knowing God and can instigate and drive appropriate action. Again, like Ephesians chapter 4, eh, is it 20, 19? Eh, look it up for me. Um, somewhere in Ephesians 4, <laughs> it says, be angry, but don't sin. Right? Um, which is an interesting phrase because it's actually in Greek, it's, it's an imperative. He's telling you, be angry. Why? Because there's crap to get angry about, right? And that's, that anger that wells up within you can be a righteous anger that drives you to act. If a woman is being violated on the street and men walk by and do nothing, that is an evil, right? That should stir up something in you as a protector to say, no, I'm going to intervene in this. Um, and, and that should, that emotion in us should drive us to act. It it can be an an impetus. It can drive appropriate action. Now, obviously, it can get way out of bounds and become a devil and kill you. Um, But that's the danger of it, right, is emotionalism. Believing um, emotion is the most reliable basis for interpreting reality and making decisions. For example, do what feels right to you. Hey, I tell you what, go live by that for like five minutes and see how that works out for you, right? Again, from a pragmatic standpoint, it does not work. Or be true to yourself. These are some of the things that, that culture um, will tell us. Uh, hey, over and above everything else, be true to yourself. Yeah, but what if being true to yourself ends in your total destruction? Um, yeah, whatever. Okay, so as we think about these five sources of authority, again, like I said, all of them are constantly and simultaneously working together together. Um, as we think about the reality that we live in. And so the reason that I put this tree up here, I think it's a good image for you to take home with you tonight, is um, the tree is all of those five things, but only one of those sources of authority can be the trunk that holds up the other four. Which one do you think that is? Come on, loud and proud. Scripture, that's right. Why? Because this is, like I said before, something that's God-breathed, where God says, this is what I want you to have. This is what I want you to live by. This is what I want you to um, interact with, um, to where ultimately, and ultimately I think it gets back to um, what what David was saying before. Um, As you are um, uh, searching the Scriptures, what you're going to find in the Scriptures it's not necessarily a rule book to follow, like, doing these, all, this, all these things, okay, great, I'm a good little Christian boy or girl, right? I think what you're going to find is, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are going to encounter a person, right? And that person, we believe, um, lives in, dwells in you, and can transform um, the way that you think, live, believe. So I think the question for all of us, as we think about um, epistemology and and our sources, our influences of knowledge, all of those things is, hey, which one is the loudest in your life, right? As we're going through and mixing, hey, why do you believe what you believe, um, then, then I think when you look at it um, ordered under um, a Christian worldview, it would be scripture is the trunk and then from that flows tradition, flows reason, flows experience, flows emotion, Right? Um, what you'll find is, and you find this anytime, anytime you encounter someone um, in, who is of the world, right? what you find in the world is a total inversion of this. Okay, How I feel determines um, the type of experiences that I'm going to choose to have, which determines the way that I frame the way that I think about the world from a reasoning standpoint, which determines what my tradition is, which determines... Who my God is. And guess what? When you are acting out of your emotion all of the time, every single time your God is going to be who? Yourself. Right? And when you are your own God, right, you become a demon and destroy yourself. If you don't believe me, try it. And I'm sure quite a few of you in here have tried it and can attest to the fact that it just doesn't work. All right, I got a fly to give you guys some... Uh, time to ask questions. There's this idea of double knowledge, and, and I just want to read some quotes and then make a point, and, and I'll be done, all right? Um, so again, get ready to ask your questions. This is Augustine, um, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the greatest theologians ever. He says, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know you. So there's this idea of, of, do I understand myself? Do I understand all of the factors that are playing themselves in so that when I do think, I can think rightly about God? It's not that you don't have any ideas about God. It's just when you don't understand all of these things that your ideas about God are just wrong, right? Bernard of Clairvaux in Sermon 37 says this, Know yourself and you will have a wholesome fear of God. Know God and you will also love God. You must avoid both types of ignorance because without fear and love, salvation is not possible. Without knowledge of self, we have no knowledge of God. Again, understanding yourself um, allows you to better know God. And as you grow in the knowledge of God, you're going to grow in the knowledge of yourself. That's why they call it double knowledge. You increase in both as as you progress. Our soul is so deeply grounded in God and so endlessly treasured that we cannot come to knowledge of it until we first have knowledge of God. We can never come to the full knowledge of God until we first clearly know our own soul. Um, Julian of Norwich, John Calvin, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are bound together by a mutual tie. In the Institutes, Blaise Pascal in Pensées five twenty-five to twenty-seven, to know God and yet know nothing of our own wretched state breeds pride. Um, again, you become your own god. Um, to realize our misery and know nothing of God is mere despair. But if we come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We find our true equilibrium, for there we find both human misery and God. This is uh, Rob Rees and Lone in, in a book called Deep Mentoring. He says, One wonders whether perceived shallowness that seems to pervade much of the church today is in part due to our knowing many of the right answers, yet failing to integrate those answers into the reality of our daily lives. Somewhere along the way, many Christians have abandoned this notion of a double knowledge dynamic in the Christian life There are too many Christians floundering in their spiritual lives today because they have, in one form or another, failed to appreciate the interrelationship between knowledge of God and knowledge of self. Either they have falsely equated Christian maturity with a self-actualizing journey that ignores the horizon of God's character and work, or they have reduced their growing up in Christ into a heady exercise that equates biblical IQ with genuine sanctification. Right. Basically what they're saying is, look, until you're knowing yourself, this is Colossians 1, like I read before, 9 and 10, until you know yourself, then, then you're going to be stunted in, in your ability to know God. But, but if you're not truly entering into the divine life, if you're only reading the Bible for information's sake and not as a means to grow in greater intimacy with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit then all you're doing is, is stunning your, the growth of yourself because really all your, all your biblical knowledge just becomes an extension of your own self. Your pride is working itself out, right? And so we must know both. We must humbly come to God and through our knowledge of God as we apply the scriptural principles, as we apply the spiritual life through the power of the Holy Spirit to know Christ more, to enter deeply into the divine life, then you know yourself. And as you know yourself, you're going to grow in deeper knowledge of God. And as you grow in deeper knowledge of God, you're going to know yourself more. right? And ultimately, you're not, it's not something that's where it's going to be, hey, I know this abstract, platonic, ideal body of truth, that's the standard. It's no, you begin to realize that you are walking in the truth. You're walking with a person. Right? And, and, and that's why Jesus said, look, um, this is eternal life. That they know you. That they know you relationally relate to you, that they talk to you, that they listen to you, that they walk with you in the cool of the evening, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Truth, again, we're not talking about an abstract ideal separate from God. Um, God is truth. He defines truth. Truth is a person, and truth is a person that you know. Truth is a person that you walk with. Um, and, and, and so transforms your life. Okay, Joe Sanders. Where are you at, dude? There's Joe Sanders. Hey, this is Joe Sanders. He serves also on the Great Questions team and uh, um, is one of our um, solid uh, leaders in that ministry, and he's going to help us out, um, sit on the panel. Um, so at this time, if you have a question, if you've written something down, we've got about eight, 18 minutes, um, we're going to hard stop at 8.30. Um, so we'd love to interact with you about anything that we've said or something that sparked another thought um, in, your, in your mind um, so if somebody will go if you have a question I would say right now get up and move, there's a microphone right over here so if you have a question get up and stand in line in front of this microphone and um, we'll interact with you like that you just need to turn the microphone on um, otherwise it's not going to work <laughs> and that's true <coughs> if you will, um, if you don't mind just tell us your name and then ask your question Yep, that one. Just make sure you turn it. There's an on switch. Got
2: it? Uh, my name is James Parks. My question is, uh, we say that uh, Scripture is the basis of our truth, uh, and the Bible is the basis of our knowledge. How do you answer someone who says, well, that's your truth, uh, the Quran is a Muslim's truth, and other uh, holy texts are their truth's? So how do you know that your truth is the truth?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I would say, because uh, I think there's a little bit of misunderstanding there, I don't think that Scripture is the basis for truth. Um, I think that, that the, basis for, the basis for truth is God himself. Um, so I think Scripture is the written testimony about God, right? Those are two different things. Um, one of the common mistakes among our tradition is putting all of our weight onto the Bible, Right? we shouldn't do this. Um, why? Because um, the person who holds all of the weight is Christ himself. So um, I would say that uh, our basis for, for truth is Jesus Christ who said, I am truth. And then the answer is, um, is, is, uh, is the tomb empty or not? That's why. I mean, everything hinges on the resurrection. So um, how, do you know that, um, how do we know that Jesus' claim about himself is actually true? He's not dead anymore. Which brings us to week three of this class, how do we know that the resurrection is historical? Also, to plug um, a training day we have on the 19th of this month, um, we're going to be answering this very question, what are the earliest sources of knowledge about Jesus? How do we know the resurrection is historical? All of these things. I mean, everything hinges on whether Jesus is dead or not. And if he's not dead, then he's right. And if he's right, then he's truth. And not the Koran or your own personal whatever
2: can i follow up uh, sure. on that thought i can certainly understand how that would um, would eliminate other prior sources of truth uh you know jewish and, and other uh buddhist and other things that came before christ but um <clears throat> for instance the quran and i'm not uh, i'm not certainly saying that is the source of truth at all but i've heard this argument before that that um you know the Quran is, is basically uh, the Muslims view that the Christians got it wrong, mm-hmm. and there's a different interpretation of Christ's life. And, and yes, he may have uh, risen from the dead, but he was a prophet like other prophets have, have uh, risen from the dead and gone to heaven. So um, you know what what makes our, our text uh, more true than their text?
0: Yep, yep. Uh, do
1: you want to uh, tackle that, or do you want to keep Joe talking? Whatever. No, no. Joe? I do oh, want to no, tackle it. Uh, make sure
0: good. make sure you're on. Am I on? Yeah, you're on.
3: I'm on. Mm-hmm. All right, um very good question. Um I would just piggyback with what what Nathan said. I think that if uh if the 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 historical if Jesus rose from the dead, obviously, then that gives validity that he is God and then he is truth. But also what Jesus said about himself then becomes into play. And so um, and, and as he said, in week three, when you talk about the, the, history, uh, the historicity of the resurrection, we're going to get into um, some of the, what scripture says and how reliable the texts are. And if those texts are reliable and Jesus did rise from the dead, then what he says about himself should supersede anything that we say or interpret back into his life, Muslims or any other religion. So, so I would probably answer that question. Um, with with that to say that hey look he rose from the dead which is the foundation of our faith which means he's God he is truth and then the secondly what he says about himself then becomes more important than what any other uh, historical figure did.
1: I, I would just say, say one quick thing that I I don't see it as a truth question. Um, it's it's a God question like is my God right or is your God right but it's not it's not a truth question and so. Since it's a God question, you would answer it along the, the the evidence that that both these gentlemen have talked about. You can answer it uh, if you want to be a postmodern and just answer it by your own testimony. But um, I would embrace that fact that yeah, well, of course you say that. I say this. One of us is wrong, or both of us are wrong, but we're not both right. Um, so so let's try and find out. Uh, why, uh, let me tell you why I hold, I think I am. I think my God's right. Um, Rose from the dead. My life has been changed. I got lots of answers to prayer regularly, and I'm happy. How's that, how how are you doing, Um, sort of thing.
0: Yeah, and the only thing I would uh, add as well is, and we'll talk about this, I think I got the weeks mixed up. Week three, I think, is the historical reliability, or the reliability of the text, um, and one of the cardinal um, stances of Islam is that the, the, the text of the New Testament has been corrupted, which is why they're able to say, no, Jesus only believed that he was just a prophet. But um, I think we have a ma- actually multiple mountains of evidence that shows, no, the text was not corrupted over time. And actually, um, Jesus' claim about himself was not that he was just a mere prophet, but that he was actually divine. And so... There's a multifaceted response to that, but we've been backed into a corner. You either have to ignore a mountain of evidence about what Jesus said about himself and the historicity of the resurrection in order to hold to a Muslim position.
4: Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Travis uh, Fitzgerald and I was um, just kind of going back to your first slide where you were talking about these two opposite claims, right? That there's no truth and that there's an infinite number of truths. truths. And if if in my, you know, short amateur career of reading apologetics, if I can look at that in under a minute and say that if you say no truth, there is no truth, that in itself is a truth claim that you've just made. So you've kind of sought off the branch that you've, you're on. Then on the other end of the spectrum, if you say that there are infinite truths, then my truth that says you're wrong, therefore must be true. So my question is, if, if I can come at I can just come up with that off the top of my head in, in a minute. What is the response to that with people that you've used... Because I've read some um, Greg Kokel and some, um, uh, some Lee Strobel, and they kind of use that, that argument. What's, what, is, what is the response to that from someone who comes at you from one of those two angles? Go
1: ahead. I, I think that there... Um, would you say your question again?
4: Well, I just, I mean, like, I guess my... It, it just seems so simple, because as I'm looking through some of these, ah, these yeah, truth right. claims they're making, I yeah. can say, well, you. Yeah. if you yeah. say there's no truth, you've just made a truth claim, so therefore you've invalidated your position.
1: Yeah. The, 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 first of all, I don't, I don't disagree with you, okay? Right. So what I'm about to say is more answering your question, what would they say? Yes, that's what sort I... Of, yeah, yeah the, um, they would say you're being a Cartesian. You're, you're using logic... Um, and and life isn't quite logical. It's it's existential. There's there is no truth. Some would say, and it just happens. Others would say, well, that's good for you. It's it seems to be working for you. It isn't for me. I, I hold to a different truth. So so they would they would get right past the Cartesian if this then that sort of logic. And uh, I I. I I have no dispute with what you, personally, with, with what you said. Um, at the end of the day, their saying, the, the ones I just mimicked, is that there, there is no meaning by the original author. That, that's their basic premise. There's no meaning by any, in, in anything. It's, you're, there's no meaning in history. It was done by historians, and they all have an ideology. They would, all these things, they just like cut through quick. Um, uh, I, I would say I disagree. I think, I think you can use critical reason and find out what the author meant. I think you can use critical thinking and come pretty close to, to the very things that you're just saying. And besides that, I got an empty tomb, and I'm happy. I read my Bible, and he seems to answer my prayer, and my life is changing. And it's been that way for 42 years.
3: I, I, would, I would add, too, it's, it kind of goes right along with Nathan said from the beginning, is when they ask that, you're right. Sometimes the answer seems plain to us, but it's because that's not really what they're asking, right? So so sometimes it's, it, you know, if it's like there is no truth, sometimes the problem is not... In today's world, you can say that something that's is true, point. and that's not really the problem. It's what you're saying is not true when you say that, which really becomes the issue. So it's kind of you... I would. You almost have to do that on an individual basis because sometimes when somebody says, hey, you don't have the truth, it's not philosophical. It's more a personal thing. Like, hey, I, I know that you guys are, are against gay marriage or something like that. I, I'm for it. So, so really, how do you know that you're true? So it's really more of a personal issue more than it is just a philosophical quick answer.
0: Which is why, I mean, getting back to... You can't just pay attention to the conversation. You have to pay attention to like how is the conversation being framed, right? What's the language that's being used to for a certain um, idea idea or position to be championed? Then what you'll see is um, in culture. I mean, language is everything. I mean um, you'll you'll begin to um, you'll begin to see that a certain side will begin to steal words away from their natural meaning and and begin to apply other meaning to that word and it's almost like they take the meaning captive and then and then begin to um uh, play that self out in order to advance uh the meaning that they want it to mean and so uh, i mean as i was thinking about your question what i was thinking is it all gets around the definition of what's what is truth you're thinking of it in a logical like um, yeah cartesian way Whereas someone else is saying, um, yeah, I know, that that's what, I, I know that's what you think truth is, but I'm defining, I'm defining that very word in a totally different way, right? And so at that point, you feel like your legs are cut out from under you because you're like, I'm trying to reason with you, but you won't reason with me. Um, and, and, it, and I think that's why Joe's point is really spot on. I mean, we, for us experientially, as we engage with skeptics and agnostics and atheists all the time, this is, I mean, we run up against this
1: Could I say every time, yeah. yeah. I think it'd be easy for you to come away from, from here thinking, how am I going to remember all this and, and and debate all these points? Honestly, in the years that I've been doing uh, great questions, um, I can only think of one time a person came in to to debate. It's, it's almost always, and this is getting also to what Joe and Nathan were saying, a, a, A pastoral thing, Mm -hmm. that um, just be listen to them and be be there, be be a friend to them, and and embrace the fact that you do you do believe in God, and you're you're persuaded that that's contagious, Um, and uh, I think it'll I think it'll work.
0: Good. Go ahead, man. What's your name? Uh, My name's Luke Tucker. Uh, I was wondering if you guys could briefly uh, discuss from Scripture why God is the standard of goodness. And then also kind of address the, the, I guess kind of common question or, or thought of, uh, if God was to say rape was good, does that make it good?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I don't. Do you want to?
0: Go ahead. I, I mean, I feel like you.
1: Talk. Go ahead. No, go ahead, then.
0: No, no, no. That's. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. No, I was going to say I feel like okay. that you already started to address that in your talk, so I think it'd be natural for you to continue. Okay. To
1: talk yeah. About that's great question. It's uh, f- full of full of little little questions because um, because God is. Where, where did you go? Where? Yeah, great. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> wow, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> whoa, <laughs> whoa! <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that <laughs> um, be, because He is. Um, I, I um, if if that's one of the things that in in my own personal journey with Christ, I'm just. He can do whatever he wants. I think that's what Paul says. Who, who are you to answer the, the potter, the clay to answer back to the potter? I, I think there's an element of he, he can do what he wants. The part that blows me away is he does nice things. Um, he can do what he wants. He's not, he's not going to change because his nature is what it is. Everybody's nature is what it is, So, um, including his. Um, I don't think he's going to say rape a child or rape a, 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 a woman or wait, you know he's not he's not going to say bully somebody he's it's just not his nature w- would he have the right to absolutely would he do it absolutely not
3: yeah I think I, I, to piggyback on that um, Mike Mike. oh sorry uh, to piggyback on that um, very good question it is how do you know God is good uh, one because he says he's good um and I think uh, David hit it on his head. I think we forget there are some things that God can't do. The Bible says that God cannot lie, and w- meaning that God can't contradict his own nature. Um, so we know goodness only through God. And so the, the evidence that God has given us for good lets us understand his nature, which makes us can say the things that he may, will not do. And some of the things he will not do are things that go totally against his, his nature and who he is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's, I mean, I know even while you're, you guys are talking, I'm, I, know, I know that God's interaction, especially with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, is extremely complex, right? I mean, there are times when the Lord is seemingly, well, no, I mean, not seemingly. He's commanding the nation to do some atrocious things, right? Um, and yet, I think in the midst of that, um, well, two points. One, um, I think that um, God is the one who has all of the information, right? And I think that that's really important. Because um, if, if, you, um, if you go by what you think you know, then you, you become what we would call like a consequentialist, right? Um, basically, like the consequences, the way that I think the consequences will play themselves out are going to dictate the way that I live my life. Well, the problem with that is you, have, you don't even have a fraction of the information. So, um, I mean, ultimately, um, uh, I think when, when perceived evils enter into the equation and God seems to be a part of this, like the, like the Canaanite conquest or the Midianite uh, vengeance or, you know, uh, multiple other examples where Yahweh is acting um, in certain ways, um, I think what we, what we see is actually um, uh, there, is, um, there are ends in an evil fallen world. There are, there are means that need to take place in order for the ends to turn out as best as they can. And that's just the way that the world works. Um, there's, there's no way around that. I mean, I, and at least in my worldview and the way that I see the world especially you know, being an infantry officer in Afghanistan and seeing very real examples of stuff like that, they're um, ultimately, I think, the, the the answer to the question of is God good is answered um, in the person of Jesus. Absolutely. Um, so, um, what is God doing about rape? What is God doing about murder? What is God doing about evil? Um, well, He's sending His Son right smack dab into the middle of it to redeem it. And so um, I think God judges, but he judges with nail-scarred hands. And I think that's really important. to remember.
1: Right. Yeah, that's a great point.
0: All right. It's 830, so um, we're going to hard stop now. We appreciate you guys, uh, your time. And for sure, um, registration is still open. It will be open the whole time. So if, you, if, if other people are interested and, you know, you think this is helpful, next week um, we're going to cover, do science and Christianity contradict one another? Um, So y'all have a good week and hopefully see you next Thursday.